Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. You guys, I'm so excited to share active skin repair with y'all. I started using this product a few months ago with my family and it has replaced so many different products in my medicine cabinet. We are always looking for more natural, non-toxic solutions and active skin repair replaces neosporin and ointment um, and all kinds of things. And it really can be used for so much. It can be used for minor wounds, cuts, burns, chafing, rashes, insect bites, really any skin irritation. I even have been using it for diaper rash and irritation recently, and it's amazing. And the great thing about it is that it is non-toxic, it's antibiotic-free, and it doesn't sting. So it's safe to use around the head, the eyes, the mouth, and the ears, and it really works. So you can go to bldgactive.com and use the code Taylor to save 10% off of your order and get free shipping. Hi everyone, welcome. Today I am really excited. I have my friend Zofia Zafiras here. She is a fertility awareness educator. Is that right? Did I get that right? That's right. (laughs) Awesome. So I I get a lot of questions all the time about um, natural family planning and fertility awareness. And I know this is a topic that a lot my community really cares about and wants to know more about. And I am not an expert in that area. You know, I've just kind of started dabbling into it too. And so I'm so excited to have you here with us to share your experience with us. And so, um, Sophia, why don't you just go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got started with this and your education? Awesome. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share about this because it is definitely a passion of mine. Um, So yeah, my name is Sophia and I teach fertility awareness, often called by the other name, natural family planning. Um, My business is called Sage Fertility. And there's a few reasons behind that name. The name Sophia, my name means wisdom in Greek. And so I like to think of like a sage wise older woman, like as an inspiration, passing things down. I'm not an older woman, but it's kind of like the imagery I hold in my mind. And also um, sage green is my favorite color and it evokes the idea of natural and holistic healing for me. So all of those things kind of influenced the name that I chose for my um, work. But yeah, I got into this work um, kind of in a roundabout way. Um, since I was probably 12, I'd been interested in uh, herbalism and more holistic ways of caring for oneself. And in my teenage years, my mother um, went through some issues with her own um, efforts to conceive. Um, I was an only child for 15 years, and my mother had probably four or five miscarriages um, over the years in my teenage years. And um, going through that alongside her and seeing the suffering and like just extreme sadness that that caused her was really rough. And so in those years, I would go to the library and I would check out every book on like midwifery and fertility that I could find um, because I'm always a researcher. And I would just try to dig into that and see what I could find to help her out. Um, But then around the age of 18, I remember seeing the book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which is the book that I feel like probably most women learn about fertility awareness from. Um, It has its pros and its cons for sure, but it's a really good introduction to the um, practice. So I picked up that book. I started reading it, tried to self-teach myself to chart my cycles. That was a whole long process. Definitely looking back, I uh, didn't know as much as I thought I did. But over the years, I just got more and more interested and I began a program with a school in Canada. It was a two-year program to be able to teach. Um, After a year of that, I felt like we were ideologically a little bit um, 
not in sync. So I switched to another program, FEM, which stands for Fertility Education and Medical Management. And um, they have doctors that are trained to interpret cycle charts, and then educators like myself who teach women to do the actual practice of cycle charting. And so I did that year program and I finished that. And now I'm just working with clients and yeah, just spreading the word. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's so cool. So what would you say, I mean, where, where do women begin with this? I guess that's my question. I don't even know where to yeah. start. It can feel overwhelming at first, for sure. Um, I think one helpful thing to know is that thousands of women use these methods and have used them over the past few decades as the science really reached its like pinnacle of <laughs> um, credibility on this. Um, there's been a lot of research in the past century um, that has deepened our understanding of human fertility. And I would say that probably the best way to start, um, and I am an educator, so obviously I'm going to say this, would be to connect with an educator and to work with them for about three months. That's what the studies have kind of indicated is the sweet spot for women gaining comfort. Um, but even before that, if you just want to know, like, is this something that I would be interested in? You could go to this one website called factsaboutfertility.org, and they have um, just a lot of information about the studies that have been done, the efficacy rates of different types of fertility awareness. Um, it would be helpful probably to refine what you are wanting to use it for first. Um, people use fertility awareness for three different things mostly. Um, the first would be to try to conceive because it helps you to identify the fertile times of your cycle um, because women are only fertile for roughly six days per cycle, but it can vary from cycle to cycle and woman to woman. So this is why we're tracking um, our symptoms daily in order to understand in real time, not with predictions, understand in real time um, what our fertile or infertile status for this day is and then to act accordingly. So people who are trying to conceive use this to optimize their chances of conception because a lot of women believe that um, ovulation always happens on day 14 and this might be leading them to time intercourse at times where they're actually not fertile. So honing in on their unique bodies phases. Um, women also use it to um, avoid pregnancy or to space pregnancy because with the same knowledge of when you're fertile and infertile, you can just switch your behavior. So instead of trying to time intercourse when you're fertile, you would do it in the opposite. You would try to have intercourse when you're infertile. And um, depending on the method, there are a variety of efficacy rates. And I would warn that some websites online namely the ones that have sponsorships from um, pharmaceutical companies like to misreport uh, the efficacy rates of fertility awareness. They mix it in with the rhythm method, which is an antiquated method um, based upon basically just calendar predictions of average cycle dates um, across the population of women and then kind of guesstimating when you're gonna be fertile or not. So fertility awareness is not that, it's like real time observation of symptoms um, but they'll mix that in and they'll say, oh, it has like a 50 or 70% efficacy rate, which obviously would not be that attractive. Um, the method that I teach is called the symptothermal method, which is a combination of tracking um, cervical fluids, which is something that every woman has. It's totally normal. A lot of women just have uh, a little bit of a spook about it because they think they have an infection, but it's actually a very normal thing that all women experience from puberty onwards through menopause. Um, and I also teach uh, temperature tracking in conjunction with that. And we can maybe get into why those two symptoms a little bit more later on. But um, the most effective methods um, tend to be symptothermal methods with a little bit of extra calculation added in. Um, and that can get up to 99.4, 99.6% effectiveness, which is on par with hormonal birth controls but without any of the side effects that women often experience and with no repercussions for like long-term fertility. Um, but yeah, backtracking, the third reason that women would uh, chart often is also for health. So even if someone's not sexually active, not trying to conceive, not trying to avoid, charting for health is a really wonderful and valid reason to chart your cycles. Um, basically because you are able to see um, as the weeks and days unfold, how your hormonal patterns are playing out and in that way, you can see and try to identify early if you are having signs of imbalance. And this can help you because you would know when to um, optimize the timing of 
hormonal testing, um, or whether you can even see on there, maybe you might have a thyroid issue or some nutritional deficiencies that you can then try to hone in on and heal. So that instead of trying to always apply treatments from the outside, but without really knowing what's going on inside, it's kind of a root cause thing where you're looking inward, trying to see um, what is my body telling me? Am I in balance? Am I not in balance? And then trying to restore balance, if not. Wow, wow that is amazing. You know, I've talked about this before, but I think it is just such a huge disservice to women that we don't get this education. I had no idea what natural family planning, fertility awareness, whatever whatever term you want to use. I had no idea that it was possible probably up until about two years ago. Um, you know, I just kind of relied on my, my apps that gave me yeah. probably kind of what you were talking about um, that gave me a guess, a guesstimate of when I was, when I was ovulating or when my period was going to start. And those are really inaccurate. I wasn't, I didn't know I could use my, my cervical fluid, my cervical mucus or my temperature to track. And it's just how disempowering to women to just make us feel from puberty on that we have no control over our fertility, that we just need to be put on hormonal birth control and be kind of powerless. Yeah. I think uh, when you come to a point in your life where you might learn this information and you look back, a lot of women, I think, do feel a little bit betrayed. But we also know that, for example, our mothers and grandmothers probably didn't have this information either. And so right. mothers are passing down um, kind of this being in the dark to their own daughters, which is why I really am inspired by the idea of this becoming like generational knowledge that will hopefully try to turn the tide a little bit. And so that the next generations, our daughters will not be um, coming to this as late as we did. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when it comes to why we wouldn't be told about it, say when children are in school or why a doctor might not mention it, there's not money behind it. Right. Um, you might pay an educator, but that's like a one-time thing. And it's one person. It's like a small business. It doesn't benefit the big pharma. Um, the medical industrial complex doesn't uh, want to push this because it doesn't have you hooked on a drug. I don't mean hooked, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Constantly reliant on a medication in order to control um, some part of your physiology. And so it is really overprescribed from puberty onwards for all sorts of things, even beyond family planning, you know, um, quote unquote, irregular periods, painful periods, acne, endometriosis, PCOS, um, all of these things, women find themselves not really given many answers and maybe not even very complete testing being done. Um, to try to figure out what is the cause of these things that they're struggling with. Um, but yeah, yes. everyone's happy to kind of hand out the, the pill. Yeah. And, you know, just a disclaimer, I think that every woman should have the, the right to decide what, how they want to deal with their fertility and if they want to go on, you know, hormonal birth control. But at the same time, I think that the majority of women are not fully informed on the risks of hormonal birth control. And I've, I talked about this in my stories, my Instagram stories, probably like a year ago. And I shared my experience. I was put on hormonal, hormonal birth control when I was 13, um, wow. very shortly, probably only a couple of months after I actually started my, my menstrual cycle because I had severe cramps and my mom did what she thought was best. She took me to her, her doctor who put me on birth control and told us that the less periods that I can have, the better it would reduce my chance of cancer. And so I was on birth control up until I was in college. Um, I also had severe anxiety and severe depression. And I now believe that those are linked. And anyway, so I, I talked about this in my stories and I got probably dozens and dozens of stories from other women who have had health issues that they've since linked to birth control. So I think it's just important to talk more about it and help women to be aware of this reality and of these risks and not that we're necessarily vilifying hormonal, hormonal birth control, because maybe that works better. Maybe that's what a specific woman, woman wants. Um, but just to be more open about the risks, I think is so important. Yeah. I mean, the idea of informed consent Right. comes in here. We probably don't have that in many areas um, of our life or as much as we think we do. But yeah, the idea Absolutely. of knowing what are all the positive things that might come of this, but also we need to have the full picture. What are all of the potential negative things that could come um, from going on this medication? Because 
Um, one thing that's really big to my approach to health is the idea that we are holistic beings. So of course, our mental, emotional health is connected to our physical health, but also within the body itself, all of the um, body systems have an interplay. And so we look at the body as an integrated whole. And so if we are um, shutting down fertility, shutting down the connection between the brain and the um, ovaries hormonally, that's what um, birth control does, then it's not going to just be um, contained within that one body system. Reproductive system, because it is controlled by hormones, is a part of the endocrine system. All of the hormones in our body are a part of the endocrine system. And um, I remember reading at one point that shutting down fertility um, really affects up to about 52 body functions. And this can be uh, wide ranging, like your gut, um, obviously psychological things. Many women do find that they have an increase in anxiety and depression. So it's, it's kind of a pattern where women are put on hormonal birth control. And then it's not uncommon that not that long later, they're put on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Um, I had one client who was on a hormonal birth control and then also on antidepressants. And when she transitioned off of hormonal birth control, um, she was told that her doses were to- dosages were too high for her um, psych meds because it was already improving in a short time after coming off of hormonal birth control. So I always wonder, like, instead of piling more things on, trying to like band-aid different things, um, it's always good to step back and try to figure out, like, just my body as it is, what's going on. Right. Um, but yeah, with regards to starting as a young girl. Um, A few thoughts on that would be that uh, the cycle does need to mature. And so many girls do find that they have painful periods or irregularity um, in the first five or so years of menstruating. And this is because the body's kind of calibrating and getting used to um, cycling. It's getting into its own flow. Um, But many times this is pathologized and um, they're trying to regulate it. The bleed that you have on a pill is not a menstrual bleed because Um, It doesn't come as a result of ovulation. Um, It's just a withdrawal bleed. Um, But it is a cyclical bleed. So it makes a person feel like they are menstruating at regular intervals and that they no longer have um, irregular cycles. So if the cycle is shut down early on, then it isn't giving the opportunity for that girl's body to have mature cycles. And so maybe she comes off it in her 20s and she's been on it for 10, 15 years. Um, then her body kind of has to not only revamp the connection between the mind and the ovaries, but also um, try to kind of catch up with the maturation that didn't happen earlier on. Um, And also the cervix, which is the thing that is so big in fertility awareness. It's just the small entrance to the neck of the uterus. Um, You can feel it with your finger if you're doing internal checks. And of course, during birth, that is what expands so much to allow the baby to um, come into the world. But um, the cervix also needs to mature. And so when a girl is put on hormonal birth control in her teenage years, it stops the maturation. And hormonal birth control also ages the cervix prematurely. So it not only stops the maturing of the cervix, but it also makes it go backwards and starts to age it. An extra two years for every year that a woman is on hormonal birth control. Um, Interestingly, pregnancy rejuvenates it in the opposite direction, Mm. um, which is encouraging um, and kind of a cool fact. Um, And then the other thing would be that prolonged suppression of bleeding of any kind. So now people are being told, not only do you not need to menstruate, you can be on the pill and bleed in that way, but it would be better if you didn't bleed at all because bleeding is inconvenient, which is interesting because that's something kind of that all women experience. So now we're being told that something that we all experience is, I don't know, an inconvenience to the world. Mm-hmm. But um, prolonged menstrual suppression, where a woman might bleed maybe four times a year, um, can also have ramifications with iron toxicity because this shedding of blood is one of the ways in which women detox excess iron. Um, so, yeah, there's just a lot that happens when you mess with one thing in the body. Um, a lot of other waterfall effects can take place, mm-hmm. and it's good to know that beforehand so you can offer that consent. Absolutely. So this kind of goes along with what we're talking about because we're talking about hormonal birth control. Um, 
once a woman, if a woman is on birth control and then decides to come off birth control because they want to start trying to have a baby, trying to get pregnant, um, isn't there a period of time? Cause I've had friends in the past who go off birth control, hoping to get pregnant within like a couple of months. Is there a typical period of time that it can actually take for the cycle to kind of get some, get return, I guess, I don't know, become more regular and actually normalize. conceive. Yeah. Normalize. Um, and for a woman to conceive. Um, there is a range and there have been some studies to look at what the delay for the return of fertility is. Um, I would say even beyond that, um, let's say you come off of hormonal birth control and your cycle returns two months later. Um, you might want to try to start conceiving immediately. Um, another factor that I think would be important to bring in in this regard would be that um, you may be depleted in some key nutrients that will contribute to a healthy pregnancy because um, many nutrients are depleted by hormonal birth control like zinc, magnesium, and others. And so while you may officially have the ability soon afterwards, some women, it might be 18 months before their cycle returns. That can happen. Others, it might return very quickly. It really just depends from woman to woman and how long she was on the birth control in the first place, like how long things have been um, dormant. Um, but yeah, I think honing in on preconception health before you come off and definitely afterwards to make sure that you're trying to restore your own stores so that if you do become pregnant, you're not giving out of an empty cup. You want to make sure that your stores are filled and a little bit extra so that you have enough to give the baby. Um, I remember reading recently that in terms of mineral depletion, women lose about four pounds of minerals in pregnancy. Um, mm. And I think that speaks to how much we give in that mm -hmm. regard. And it's really beautiful, but also you don't want to be in a more depleted state after you give birth. Um, right. You want to have the energy to be able to be with your child. Um, so while there is a range of return of fertility afterwards, um, I would recommend giving it a few months to try to really work on preconception nutrition. Um, there is one fertility awareness educator who's been teaching for probably 20 something years and I really appreciate her work. She actually recommends two years after coming off of hormonal birth control. And she's definitely gives probably the largest recommendation of anyone that I know, but that's just to kind of emphasize the importance of that time of preparation and also healing. Um, so maybe you don't wait two years, but at least um, give it a few months, give it a little bit of time. Um, and if you were interested in that, there's a book by a dietitian called Lily Nichols called Real Food for Pregnancy. And I recommend that to pretty much every woman I work with, both for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum nutrition, because um, she really hones in on every specific nutrient and how to get it in your actual diet. So I would say yes. try to eat that way, give it a few months, and then go with a little bit more energy <laughs> into yeah. trying to get pregnant. That makes so much sense. And I love Lily. I'm a huge fan. Her book, I recommend it too. Um, so this kind of goes hand in hand then. And I know this is a question somebody submitted. How long do you typically recommend from the time a woman is pregnant and, and gives birth to conceiving again? Because we're talking about healing and, and um, making sure that your body has the, the right nutrients needed to support that pregnancy. I guess, yeah, there would be two considerations to take into place there. Is the woman breastfeeding or is she not breastfeeding? Mm -hmm. We know that when a woman's breastfeeding, the nutritional demands are very similar to that of pregnancy, um, caloric demands as well. Um, so if you were breastfeeding, you need to take that into consideration that you're continuing to um, potentially deplete unless you're still taking a prenatal or eating in a really nutrient dense way um, throughout the whole process, which I obviously recommend, but just look into your um, own situation and see where you feel like you land on that. If you weren't breastfeeding, then you would return to cycling sooner and um, you might not be becoming as, uh, or giving so much of your own nutrient stores. Um, I think the official more like medical end of things, what people often recommend is waiting about 18 months. Um, however, I land a little bit um, beyond that in what I would usually recommend. I would say maybe two years. Um, and I think if someone's breastfeeding, it's nice to give it as much time as you feel comfortable doing. Um, there are some new recommendations that I think say children appreciate breastfeeding until at least two and a half years old. 
um, to really give them a very strong start. But of course, not everyone um, wants to breastfeed that long or feels like they're able to. Mm -hmm. um, but that would allow more time for breastfeeding in between as well. But um, I'm not sure if you know of the work of Weston A. Price, the Weston yes. A. Price Foundations. Okay. Yes, they do. So they have the whole Nourishing Traditions books. Um, they're really amazing. It was a mind opener for me to come across those because I used to be a vegan, a raw vegan, a vegetarian. Same. And my brain was like so fatigued from lack of nutrition, even though I was really into, I mean, I tried to eat as best as I could, but I realized eventually I needed the animal fats mm -hmm. um, for optimal fertility and for just like brain functioning. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was actually a big turning point for me in my own cycles when I started eating um, animal products, especially grass-fed butter. That's always what I say. Like that's the mm -hmm. number one multivitamin is yeah. grass-fed butter. <laughs> um, but the Weston A. Price Foundation kind of looks at uh, what traditional cultures eat and did eat and what happened to their health once they began to eat more Western diets. And in general, there was a, a degradation in health and he was a dentist. And so he especially looked at facial structure, dental health, like the arch of the teeth and stuff like that. And what he tended to um, find was that when um, mothers were not eating these really nutrient dense diets and when their children were extremely close together, um, it might be more likely that they would have um, children that didn't thrive as much of course, this isn't always the case. If someone's really focusing in on nutrition and they have a closer space child, like that will also balance things out a little bit. But he says that in many of these cultures, uh, they kind of didn't expect a woman to have another child for about three years. Wow. Um, and so I generally say as an in-between between 18 months and three years, maybe about two years is a good time to wait. Um, but if you are planning to conceive again um, after having another one child, then continue to eat as well as you did before your first, the, before the previous pregnancy. Like you want to keep that up as long as you feel like you're in your reproductive years, then you will be childbearing. Try to continue to eat in that really fertility nourishing way. Perfect. Yeah, that's great information. So for those that are listening that fertility awareness is really new to them. Um, of course, it's best to work with an educator like Sophia, um, but can you just give us a basic overview of what it is and just kind of your, your beginner, your intro, I guess, to fertility awareness to educate somebody who doesn't really know anything about it? Absolutely. Yeah, I will try to make it a bullet point version. <laughs> so fertility awareness, simply put, is a method of tracking your biomarkers or external symptoms, um, which are correlated with what's happening inside internally. So these are systems of tracking symptoms um, and then rules that are applied on top of that. So that's complicated uh, sounding a little bit. Um, throughout each of the cycles, we have different hormonal events that are taking place, especially with regards to four hormones, follicle stimulating hormone, estrogen, luteinizing hormone, and progesterone. And these four hormones each kind of have their own patterns that they follow. And each one needs to reach its kind of pinnacle before it triggers the next hormone to reach its own pinnacle. So it's a very um, interconnected thing. Each hormone needs to reach its need needed level. Then the next one does its job. Then the next one does its job. And then the whole process starts over again once that all four hormones have had their um, role to play. So these hormones create symptoms. When estrogen is higher in the body, we tend to have a cooler body temperature. Um, and estrogen is dominant prior to our body ovulating or releasing an egg. Um, after we've ovulated, progesterone becomes the dominant hormone and progesterone also raises body temperature. And so this is why one of the symptoms that we track is basal body temperature or just your waking temperature first thing in the morning because it helps us to identify when it's taken every day and we're looking basically at just a very simple graph, we can see that at a certain point of the cycle, those temperatures are low. And then all of a sudden they change to being higher. And that gives us a clue as to retrospectively as to when ovulation probably occurred. But the most important symptom that we track is cervical fluid or cervical mucus, which is a hydrogel that is produced in the cervix and it has proteins and um, electrolytes that are all there. 
um, to make it a quite nourishing fluid. And what this does is it makes the reproductive tract a hospitable place for sperm. And so normally the vagina is acidic and also has white blood cells that kill sperm. But during a few days of each cycle, um, it becomes alkaline. And this is because cervical mucus is present and it has an alkalizing effect um, on the reproductive tract. And those white blood cells also go away during that time period. And so this makes it um, not a sperm killing machine and also um, uh, helps to nourish the sperm. So these fluids are very similar to male fluids in that regard. And they also create channel pathways um, in the reproductive tract so that if sperm does enter the body, it kind of gives them a, a slide <laughs> to ride their way to the fallopian tubes to then meet an egg if it is around the time of ovulation. So these are the two main symptoms that we track. There are other ones that people bring in if they want, like um, OPKs or uh, LH um, urine home tests, which are just a simple test. They don't predict ovulation, but they are used to help identify the surge of luteinizing hormone around the time of ovulation. But the two main um, symptoms that I always recommend tracking would be cervical mucus and basal body temperature. And we use these two things in conjunction to tell us when is fertility approaching? So when a woman's infertile, she tends to have no secretions and she's dry. Um, but when she's fertile, she tends to have a flow of cervical mucus. And so we pay attention every day to see what is coming outside of her body. And um, we keep track of this in an app, not an app that predicts like you were mentioning before, there are a lot of those apps out there, but an app that is basically a digital version of a paper chart or you can paper chart. And cervical mucus tells us when we are now fertile and the ovulation will likely be approaching. And basal body temperature tells us because we see that shift from low temperatures to high temperatures, um, when we likely already did ovulate. So between these two things, we get a really good picture um, of the fertile window for a woman. So if a woman was trying to conceive and she was dry and suddenly noticed what we call her point of change, a change from dryness to flow of mucus, um, she would try to optimize her intercourse during that time because she would know that her body is now no longer acidic and inhospitable to sperm, but is building itself up to get ready um, for ovulation. And this would be a really good time for her to optimize um, intercourse. Now, if she was trying to avoid, she probably wouldn't want to be having unprotected intercourse during that time um, because the body becomes very fertile during that time. Um, and then after she ovulates, there's a period of infertility as well. And so what I teach is basically how to observe these two main symptoms, temperature and cervical mucus, and then um, how to interpret the patterns that play out so that you can either avoid or achieve pregnancy. That was great. That was such a concise and helpful description. Um, I, I thought that was really helpful, especially as somebody who is still learning this method. So probably the most common questions that I got from the community were about how do you how do you do this when you are postpartum and either your cycle hasn't returned or when your cycle first returns and is kind of irregular. Yeah, I think this is probably the most common question that I get as well. Um, it can feel really daunting in the postpartum period because yeah, you don't have your regular menstruation to be like a clear marker of the start of a new cycle. Um, and if you're breastfeeding as well, it could go on for many, many months, um, the delay of the return of fertility. Um, if a woman learned to chart prior to becoming pregnant, this is really helpful because she already kind of learned her body in that regard. And then when it comes to postpartum, she's already had some familiarity with charting and she's just adapting the rules a little bit. Um, but I do find that this isn't always the case. So I always recommend that people try to learn even before becoming sexually active because it's just nice to learn for health tracking, but also easier to track when you're not having a pressure of using it for family planning in one regard or another. But a lot of people do um, come to discover this in the postpartum period. Perhaps they were on hormonal birth control before and they don't want to return now, maybe because they're breastfeeding or just because they um, feel like that's not where they want to go back to. And so they might want to be learning in the postpartum period. And I would just say that um, it is possible 
Um, but I would really recommend for postpartum working with someone, even if you felt like you didn't want to work with someone, if you were not, um, if you were just cycling normally with postpartum, I definitely would recommend that um, because it can take a few different, there are a few different versions of what a woman's body can be doing during that time. Um, but the main thing is that after the bleeding has stopped after birth, usually this stops by day 56 um, postpartum. And if there's no bleeding after day 56, then we would basically take two or three weeks to observe what is happening with the woman's body with regards to, does she have any type of um, fluid that is um, present or is she dry every day? And we would try to establish what we call a basic infertile pattern. So we would say um, over these two to three weeks, what pattern are we seeing almost every day? And then we would establish that even if it had some fluid so normally fluid is always fertile, but in postpartum, some women might have continuous fluid for two years <laughs> before having their cycles return. So this is why we work together to try to establish what we call the basic infertile pattern. And um, then at that point, if she sees that, then she considers herself infertile. But if there's any change from that basic infertile pattern, then she immediately considers herself fertile plus a count of three days. Um, and so it's definitely possible and also, if a woman is breastfeeding very early on, um, if a person is breastfeeding on demand and frequently throughout the night and through the day, no scheduling whatsoever and is staying close to their child, that tends to have more of a suppressive effect on fertility. Um, if you're bottle feeding, even if you're pumping or if you're um, feeding with formula or if you're scheduling breastfeeding, there tends to be an earlier return um, of fertility. And um, something else to make note of, I guess, would be that we always ovulate before we menstruate. So in the cycle, um, the eggs begin to develop at the beginning of the cycle. And at that same time, the uterus is building up its lining. And then at the point of ovulation, this lining is maintained for um, up to about 17 days. It depends um, what's happening in that cycle, but the lining is maintained so that if there was a pregnancy, it would allow time for implantation. Um, and then the baby would implant in the uterus and it would remain there for the remainder of the pregnancy. Um, but if a woman did not become pregnant, then the hormones fall at the end of the cycle and this uterine lining is shed. So the egg, if not fertilized, disintegrates and the uterine lining sheds and that's menstruation. So first she ovulates and then about two weeks later on average, she menstruates. And so if you are in the postpartum period, this is what we consider to be one long pre-ovulatory phase. So you're always in this phase where you're waiting for the quote unquote onset of fertility. And you'll know that you actually become fertile before you bleed for the first time postpartum. So we're waiting to see when that sign of fertility with a um, big increase in cervical mucus flow or other change in symptoms occurs so that we can um, try to get ahead of the game because some people obviously, and some people want to do this, um, but other people weren't planning on it and they get pregnant before their periods returned postpartum and they weren't sure why that happened. The reason that happens is just because you ovulate about two weeks before. Um, and if you weren't aware of how to identify the symptoms that your body gives you around the time of ovulation, it might catch you by surprise. So. Yes, I think um, that's yeah. really an, an important point. Um, probably the most second common question that I got was then about secondary infertility. Do, can you talk on secondary infertility or do you know much about that? Um, I'm actually not sure too much of the data with regards mm -hmm. to that. Um, I would be interested to look into that. My hypothesis would be um, that when the body is in a depleted state, it tries to slow down fertility. And so if a woman has nutrient deficiencies or she's very underweight, or perhaps she has a lot of excess weight that is throwing off her hormones because she has higher estrogen for that reason, um, all of these things can contribute to a decline in fertility. The main reason for that is that the body uh, shuts it down as a protective measure. So we consider ovulation and fertility to be a vital sign of health for women. And so if a woman in her normal reproductive years is not regularly cycling, 
Um, this to us is a kind of red flag that says um, the body doesn't feel safe. It's trying to protect itself from getting pregnant during this time. And so my uh, thought with regards to this, or my initial thought without knowing the statistics on it, would be that perhaps a woman was somewhat uh, extra depleted from her previous pregnancy and nothing had been done to restore that health. And so just like when a woman is malnourished or really stressed in any other situation, um, her body might be declining in its fertility temporarily, um, waiting for her to kind of restore nutrients and heal again um, after that first baby. That's a really, that's a really good point. And that makes so much sense. And so I feel like this might be an indicator that it could be helpful to maybe see, um, a more holistic, uh, practitioner, like a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor to get some blood work done and see if you can address those nutritional deficiencies, because I also know that a lot of women get dismissed by their, 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 their doctors in situations like this, because not all doctors will really seek out that root cause of what's going on. So um, the book, uh, what is the post, the postnatal depletion cure, that's the name of the book, the postnatal depletion cure by Dr. Oscar. And I never know how to say his last name. I think it's Sarolac. Um, but that's a really good one. And it talks a lot about postnatal depletion, nutritional deficiencies and all of that. And so that is a good starting point if you are struggling with that, or, or even if you're just postpartum in general, because I think most postpartum women experience some level of, um, deficiency and depletion. Absolutely. I have a question yeah. for you. And I think someone else got this question. Someone else asked this question too, but I've been wondering about this as well. Um, so specifically related to bed sharing and breastfeeding. So a lot of parents that listen to this um, podcast are, are bed sharing and breastfeeding their baby. And one of the one of the things that you have to monitor and track is your temperature, right? And that is, aren't you supposed to be asleep for a certain number of hours before to make it like an accurate measurement? Yeah, so if you are tracking your temperature with a normal basal body thermometer, which is taken generally orally, um, you would wanna get at least five hours of sleep and try to wake up at about the same time um, every day mm -hmm. um, to take your temperature before getting up and moving around or anything like that. So that's kind of the baseline um, way to track your temperature in that regard. Um, in the past, few years, um, a new type of thermometer has been um, gaining in popularity among fertility awareness educators. So before I say that, I would caution against um, most femtech. It's a really big um, money-making um, industry right now, and a lot of companies are coming up with all sorts of things that might not be evidence-based. Mm -hmm. um, I won't mention any specific ones, uh, but a lot of us fertility awareness educators have called out a few companies in this regard for making a little bit misleading claims. But one company that I do definitely um, align with and stand behind is TempDrop. And it's a basal body thermometer that um, is strapped to your underarm. And it basically continuously takes your temperature throughout the night. And then it averages that to find um, your like average low temperature because usually your temperature is lowest upon waking. And with that, you're still able to track and to see um, uh, temperature shift patterns on a chart. And so this is most popular among breastfeeding women um, because it is able to kind of uh, adjust to irregular sleep patterns. So I use this and a lot of other fertility awareness educators also use this. And um, it's a tool that I really recommend if you feel like maybe you're a shift worker or maybe you are you know, postpartum and bed sharing um, and you still want to track your temperature. So it is possible to fertility awareness chart with um, cervical mucus without temperature. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people actually do that in postpartum. Um, and I'm able to teach that. Um, but I usually like adding in more biomarkers because they kind of cross check each other and it just adds a little bit higher efficacy. But um, if a woman didn't want to just do cervical mucus charting in postpartum and she really did want um, the temperature as well, um, then I would recommend a temp drop. So um, also know that since temperature doesn't rise until after ovulation and in postpartum we're waiting for that first ovulation, which could be a year and a half after, um, temperature data isn't gonna be the most important until she starts ovulating again, um, because it's just gonna be kind of erratic in the postpartum period um, 
hormonal changes, uh, you know, differences in sleep can make it a slightly less useful biomarker in that time. But if you are returned to cycles, or if you think you will be soon, and you are still bed sharing and breastfeeding, then using a temp drop can be, you know, just a really helpful option in that regard. Um, so that's usually what I would recommend um, for that situation. That's so good to know. I'm going to have to look into that myself. <laughs> and Sophia sent me some links. So I am going to be putting some links to find her. And um, I think you sent me a link to the temp drop. Um, so I will put that in the podcast description so that you can find that easily. Awesome. Yeah. Sophia, do you have anything else that you want to talk about? I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I think there were two more like common questions that I would yeah. be interested in uh, chatting about. One was with regards to choosing gender, because oh, yeah. I know a lot of people have a question like that. Like, is there certain things you can do or certain times you can time things to make sure you have a boy or a girl? Um, and this always gives me a little bit of a chuckle um, because I remember the first time I read about some of the theories that come in this regard. So there were two main theories um, and some small studies, I think, that were done on this. And one of them hypothesized that the sperm that um, makes a female child, so that would be XX chromosome sperm, um, swim slower, and that male sperm XY swim faster. So I feel like there might be some other things we're overlaying <laughs> on this interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another study that had the opposite hypothesis. So that male sperm swam a little slower and that female swam a little faster. And interestingly, both of them had about 50-50 success rates. <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, that might, I don't know, tell you, yeah. <laughs> tell you about uh, probably most of these theories. So there really isn't a way with just timing your intercourse um, to choose the gender. Um, but maybe as a fun experiment, you could play around with. <laughs> <laughs> something like that and, and see where you land on the 50 50. Um, and then the other thing was with regards to age and fertility. Cause I feel like we joke. I mean, there's always been so many joking in television shows about like uh, your, your ticking clock mm -hmm. and that fertility uh, declines as women get older. But I feel like it's been kind of mocked societally. Like, Oh, it's kind of a joke. Like old fashioned people believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it would be helpful for women to actually know what are the facts um, with regard to this, because if you are wanting to have a family at some point in your life and you would like to do it um, in the most simple way possible, um, then it would be helpful to know, I guess, what the data is on that. I think a lot of women believe that fertility doesn't decline that much and they get older and they decide that they do want children um, and they find that it's a little bit harder to get pregnant potentially at that time. Um, and I think that, uh, a lot of times they might go into more invasive procedures at that point, which can be really hard on the mother's body, injecting lots of different hormones and really hard emotionally, um, for many couples. So I think if possible for natural conception to occur, it will just be easiest on everyone's hearts. Um, so learning about this, I think can be helpful. Um, so women, in a normal, um, a normal healthy woman, a chance of conceiving each cycle is about 25%. So um, over four cycles, you would say it would be likely for someone to conceive if they are a healthy, normally fertile person within about four cycles. Um, I know someone you mentioned asked about trying to conceive for many, many months and that their OB-GYN wasn't concerned um, and that was this time to maybe see a specialist um, I usually would recommend if it's been about four months um, mm -hmm. to have hormonal testing done because it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or anything like that, but it's a healthy way, to, helpful way to check in and just see how your hormones are doing. And absolutely in that situation, I would recommend learning cycle charting because it gives just such a helpful picture of what's going on um, in the body. But um, yeah, I would say it would be very helpful for that person to get some nutritional support potentially and also to um, learn to cycle chart um, because yeah, within four cycles, it would be encouraging for someone to have conceived. But in general for fertility rates over the years, um, women begin to decline around I think 32 and then even more around 37 years old. And it just gradually declines more and more until menopause. 
and men also begin declining in fertility around 40 years old. Um, and so actually over the past century, male fertility has dramatically declined with regards to sperm count, sperm quality, mobility, all of that stuff um, has been declining over the years. So what is considered normal by the medical um, uh, establishment now or whatever was considered unhealthy about a hundred years ago. So our standards have been lowering in that regard. So I think for men and women both to really focus in on um, nourishing fertility, but yeah, for women from about 32 onwards, there is a slow but steady decline. And then for men for about 40 years old onwards, um, focusing in on nutrient dense diets during this time and also charting so that you know, um, you can kind of optimize even if you are more within that age bracket in your thirties um, can help a lot. But I think that's helpful to know because a lot of people have questions about whether that actually exists or not. And it definitely does. When we're starting at about 20 weeks gestation, we have about six to 7 million um, or is it billion, uh, eggs. And by the time a child is born, it's about one to 2 million by mm -hmm. puberty. It's under 500,000 by 37 years. It's about 25,000. And then by age 51, it was found to be around a thousand. So it, like there's a ton in, uh, development in the womb and it just decreases mm -hmm. over time, but focusing in on egg health, and um, just nutrition in general will do a lot for trying to mitigate any premature decline in that regard. That's so helpful to know. And I think it all just goes back to this idea that we do have power over our bodies and our fertility, whether we're talking about nutrition um, or egg health or fertility, like we do have power. We're not, we don't have to just be these passive participants in our fertility journey and our, our childbirth journey and our pregnancy journey, you know, we don't have to just be these Absolutely. passive participants. I love that. Thank you so much, Sophia, for chatting with us. Can you, before we get off, can you just quickly tell us where we can find you? And again, I will link all of this in the podcast description as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can find me on my website, which is sagefertility.co. So .co. And on that page, you'll find my blog, um, a contact form if you want to reach out to me. And then I also have an email list and I send out kind of infrequent, but generally long <laughs> little newsletters. Um, so if you're interested in that as well, um, that will hopefully be in the description alongside my website links. So um, I look forward to, uh, I guess, meeting any of you who have listened to this and found some interesting information. Um, yeah, if you find me on my website. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one -one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.